Welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Dr. Bruce Hyman specializes in the behavioral treatments of obsessive-compulsive disorders, commonly called OCD. It's estimated that upwards of 3% of our population suffers from OCD, though some may say that it's a bit more. Dr. Hyman, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Many people toss around the notion of OCD, but really what is an OCD disorder? Is it different from just worrying? Yes, it is certainly different from worrying. Worrying, we all worry, and there's a function of worrying in our psychological makeup. Appropriate worry is a way of gearing up for some future event or situation that we have to kind of meet a challenge in in the future. It could be any number of challenges, and worrying is seems to be a way to to, uh, resolve a real problem. An obsession is distinct from a worry as it is not a true life realistic problem that the person is facing in any type of realistic way. It it is said that there's a kernel of truth to every obsession. For example, a person who's afraid of toxins and molds, there are forms of molds that are dangerous. There are forms of environmental toxins that are dangerous. But the level of worry of a person with OCD far surpasses anything that most people would consider realistic. The compulsion is the other side of OCD, and that's the behaviors that a person engages in in order to neutralize or lessen the the anxiety of this worrisome session. Just to be clear about this, think of obsessions as thoughts and think of compulsions as behaviors engaged in to neutralize or, or manage those obsessive thoughts. And compulsion typically take up a great deal of time. They can be behaviors that we see, for example, hand washing over and over many, many times, taking extraordinary lengthy showers, or checking door locks over and over, checking the garage door, whether it's down. Compulsions take up an inordinate amount of time and severely affect the, uh, the person's functional, functional level in their life. So to answer your question, there's a very large difference between uh, a normal worry and an obsession. One of the things that always um, intrigued me with people who have compulsions is that they don't learn that they've completed the task. For example, did you lock the door? Yes, you did lock the door. But they're not sure about it, and so they have to keep going back over and over to prove to themselves that they locked the door. It's like there's a, a flaw or an inability to trust that they've done whatever they wanted to do. Absolutely. That's why OCD is also termed the doubting disease. It is almost as if the mind does not get a sense of that an action is completed in such a manner as to enable the person to move on to the next behavior. They get stuck. Their thoughts get stuck in doubting thought that, for example, maybe if I, I see the door is locked, but what if it's not? What if it's not? What if my, my eyes are tricking me? What if the door suddenly or spontaneously unlocks? But there is this powerful sense of not trusting your own sense. Then what is done to try to teach, I guess we would call it treatment, but it's actually teaching or helping someone to learn to trust that the door is locked? How would you go about treating something like that? When we move into treatment, we move into a discussion of the main uh, components of effective treatment. And uh, today we have two effective forms of treatment. One, uh, medication. The use of serotonin reuptake inhibitors can certainly help patients lower the anxiety level such that they have a greater sense that they've completed the act and moved on. So there are chemical ways of adjusting the brain chemistry to help with this kind of 
sense that they, they, they've completed the act, that they've washed their hands enough sufficiently. The other form of treatment is what I do. It's I'm a cognitive behavior therapist. And what I do is I help patients to confront the anxiety that they feel as a result of these doubting thoughts and walk away or I help them to, or what a process that we call exposure and response prevention, block their compulsive urges or manage their compulsive urges such that they walk away from these situations or that they lessen their hand washes or that they lessen the compulsive behavior in some way. It's kind of a way to affect brain chemistry through behavior, through changes of behavior. It's an, The way that the treatment is done is very hands-on. It's very symptom-focused and it's essentially what I call training the brain or retraining the brain to gain this sense of certainty. So those are the two main components of treatment that, uh, that are helpful. And how long does it take to, to do proper treatment? It depends on the severity. In milder cases, I might see a patient once a week for anywhere from 8 to 15 sessions. In moderately severe cases, I might see a patient twice or three times a week for, let's say, four, four weeks, and then follow-up sessions on a weekly basis. I'm talking about hourly sessions. In the more severe cases, I do what's called an intensive program, two-hour-a-day kind of intensive outpatient, one-to-one exposure in response prevention program where I work with a patient three weeks in for two hours a day, and I'm very actively involved in, the, in helping them with their exposures. For example, I may go to their home and help them do, let's say, an exercise in turning off the, the stove and then walking away. It's a very hands-on type of approach to, to helping patients. When patients give that type of intensive effort, it's very rare that I don't see significant changes in their behavior toward a much higher level of functioning. So it depends on the patient. What's interesting, and I think a very key point, is that you're giving the opportunity for someone to use the resources at very significant levels, at very intensive levels, and that it's just not the 15-minute visit to the doctor once every three or four weeks that you get some results. Yeah. A lot more therapy time, a lot more involvement of the therapist with the patient, more so than in any type of standard treatment or standard talk therapy or standard uh, pharmacology. So it's hands-on, but it's in a very different way. Again, it's very symptom-focused. As a cognitive behavior therapist, I'm not so concerned with causes. I don't spend a great deal of time mining the, the past early relationships of patients as might be done with other methods of therapy. It's very much treating the symptoms as they exist in the present. Now, that's very interesting. But let's look at a little bit of the history because it raises the question of how early on do we believe that OCD symptoms present themselves? Is it seen as in childhood? Is it seen in, in adolescence? Yes, absolutely. In fact, youngest case of OCD I've ever treated was a four-year-old with severe hand-washing compulsions. The onset of OCD can be as young as that. There are documented cases and people in the field who treat OCD in children. We know that OCD can manifest very, very early, even though the average age of onset is roughly 19 to 20. About 40 to 60 percent of patients manifest symptoms in childhood. Now, they may not be disabling symptoms. It could be a child who has a propensity to wash their hands too much or a child who is maybe checking their homework or erasing their homework over and over. Symptoms such as separation anxiety can be often a precursor to later onset of an anxiety disorder. Including and, and phobias as well, perhaps? Yes, yeah. What we see is a tendency 
more toward a, perf- a need for control and a perfectionist, perfectionistic need for certainty that can be very annoying to people around them, to peers, to parents, asking questions over and over, a need to do, uh, to wash or to clean that's excessive. So we also see manifestations of OCD in terms of one of the key comorbidity conditions of OCD is Tourette's syndrome. So we see childhood, especially children with tics, motor tics, vocal tics, may have a tendency to uh, display OCD symptoms as well. Tourette's syndrome people often consider to be a, a neurological disorder and not necessarily a mental health disorder. Right. It is thought that OCD has much in common with Tourette's and probably has a very similar neurological basis to it as uh, Tourette's is known to have. And these forms of early onset OCD with tics, for example, tend to predict more of a lifelong condition of OCD and a condition that may require more of this type of intensive CBT plus medication to resolve or to, to help the patient manage those symptoms. You bring up an interesting point, and I think it's something that is a very significant issue. If someone goes to a psychiatrist and is being treated with medications, the amount of homework, so to speak, that they have to do is very limited. They essentially just have to swallow the pill every day. Right. It's very different with you. Yes. It, yes, it's it's much more involved. It, it involves real cooperative alliance between the patient and the therapist. The homework has to be simple enough and, and manageable enough. It has to be clear. The patient has to be accountable for doing the homework. This is one of the great challenges as a behavior therapist is engaging the patient in those day-to-day exposure exercises. One of the mechanisms to do this, and I know we're using the schoolwork analogy perhaps too far, is the notion of having a text. And one of the reasons that I'm asking you to speak with us today is because you you put out a, a workbook called the OCD Workbook, actually, and it is available on Amazon, but it addresses these issues. It's how to deal with the various symptoms on a day-by-day. It's a workbook. It's a help. Yes, it is a, a, it is a manual for self-ministered CBT for patients, for uh, sufferers who do not have access to this type of cognitive behavioral treatment, vast, vast number of people who do not have this access. And I, I wrote the book basically for those patients and for the therapists who may not be OCD specialists but want to include CBT in their treatment procedures with these patients. And everyone knows who is a honest practitioner in any aspect of mental health that rarely are our treatments exclusively one field or the other. It is a combination of the cognitive, behavioral, and, and, and again, when appropriate, medications. And that's, that's the combination, but people don't have access to the CBT as much. They really don't. They can go to their internist or the pediatrician and get a medication. It's one of the big problems. There are unfortunately very few therapists who do this work. I have been and devoted my career to training and to supervision of therapists uh, all over the country in doing this work. It's uh, one of the, the, the main passions of my and, and causes that I'm devoted to is trying to get this training disseminated to more and more therapists. So if you don't live near someone with appropriate training and the facilities, then the textbook, shall we say, the OCD workbook, is the, it's the best thing that you can get, then one should use it. Sometimes it's the only thing. And there are, are patients in remote areas who do not have access to therapy for whom 
this might be a lifeline. And I've, over the years, received calls and emails and letters from patients in very remote areas all over the world who uh, are very thankful for the, for the information in that book. It's very gratifying, but it's still very frustrating that, unfortunately, I get calls from patients who just do not have access, and it's a, it's a very sad situation. But it's, it's an improving situation. It's much better than it was 10, 15 years ago, and it's going to continue to improve. I remember that when I was in training, we had a very, very sophisticated teacher, and he would say to us, I'm going to give you a patient who has very bad OCD. The feeling was that there was very little that we could do for the person. We didn't have a whole lot in terms of medications, and that was, uh, shall I say, many years ago when I was in training. The CBT, although it existed, wasn't as refined, and these people suffered. Oh, my goodness, did they suffer. It's a gut-wrenching experience to have OCD out of control. It's one of the saddest mental, you know, mental disorders, the most painful mental disorders, because the, the patients who have it are very aware of how irrational the behaviors are. I guess one of the cornerstones of OCD, the diagnosis of OCD, is at least some awareness of the excessiveness of these behaviors. There is an in, a level of insight, and that actually makes the, the having the condition even that much more painful. So they feel it. They actually feel their own pain. Yes. Yeah. You know, some of the more dramatic manifestations or symptoms that people have seen are the notions of intrusive thoughts, contamination, symmetry, where people line up everything or their closets have all the red shirts next to the green shirts and they're all in order. That's pretty severe. The amount of time that these people spend keeping things ordered is, is incredible. Yeah, it diverts your life into absorption and minutia. That certainly takes away from the quality of your life. Do we see much of this in the elderly? Do we have much data that in the later parts of life that it's still an issue? I have treated elderly patients with OCD for many years. Those patients who manifested in the later years tend to have had it most of their lives. Interestingly enough, I have observed in some patients, especially elderly patients, a tendency for the symptoms to moderate as they get older. I'm not sure if that's an evidence-based observation, but there is one study that came out in the early 90s in Sweden regarding the lifespan of, and life course of OCD, and there was this finding that OCD actually moderated. But having said that, the patients that I see, it's particularly heart-wrenching because these patients have not had the benefits of the new, more modern treatment. And so they, they, they missed out. In a sense, they missed out. But I've also worked with patients who started appropriate treatment in their late 50s and 60s who responded very, very well. I have had patients in their 70s who I've done active exposure and response prevention with very nice, wonderful results. So there's no, there's no limit to the age at which a person can be helped with OCD. I remember also that it was once called the hidden epidemic. Yeah, absolutely. And hidden because the patients experience great levels of shame and embarrassment about having the symptoms. There are forms of OCD that are so embarrassing to the person that they, they will not share it with, with anybody, even their closest relatives sometimes are kept in the dark. And means that they, you know, they, they carry this burden around and suffer in silence to a great extent. Is it genetic? Is there a strong genetic component? There is evidence for a significant genetic component. There isn't a specific gene that's associated with OCD, but it appears to be combinations of genes that render a person vulnerable to, to the onset of OCD. There are rather strong familial patterns. It's not unusual to see a patient with OCD reports that their father 
grandfather had manifestations of the disorder. It's often not the same form as the patient who's presenting themselves in front of you, but it often runs in families. So it would be, therefore, somewhat of a mandate for a parent who does have OCD to at least give some consideration to discuss this with their child or to look and see if there are signs of OCD so that the kid could get some treatment earlier on rather than let this thing go untreated and get more complex. One of the benefits of uh, having OCD as an adult and having children is that you become aware of the, the available treatment and that could be a great benefit for your child. One of the negatives of having OCD and being uh, aware of potential for your child to have it is there tends to be a great deal of worry and almost excessive hypervigilance as far as the onset of an OCD in their children. And I'll get calls from worried parents all the time. I notice my child lights up their clothes or they're doing this or that, which are common compulsive behaviors and rituals that are seen in millions of children who do not have OCD. So the, I, I often have to help the parent to stand back and take a, a broader look at the picture before making the judgment that their child has OCD. But certainly the parent who, who has it, who has successfully had it treated in themselves, is giving their child a great benefit to get, you know, as far as getting them to proper treatment early on. And early intervention is certainly an advantage. Which is, of course, a common theme that we hope people will do is to look at symptoms, admit to them if one has them, seek help, and don't suffer unnecessarily. Dr. Bruce Hyman is a gentleman who has worked in issues of obsessive compulsive disorder. He's in Broward County, Florida. Dr. Hyman, we thank you so much for taking us on this brief tour of a very complex, a very troubling, and now an increasingly treatable situation and clinical condition. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Have a good day. You too.